Well, it's good to be back into our regular rhythm of teaching book by book through the Bible. We had a few breaks for Christmas and then some miscellaneous things the first of the year. But let's take our Bibles, can we? Ephesians chapter 1. This is week number 7, though I think it feels like we've been away for like seven weeks, doesn't it? But we're back into this study of Ephesians. We are working our way through it. We're down to verse 10. And so open your Bible and just kind of put a finger there. We'll get there in a few moments. Question for you. Have any of you ever had someone say to you, come on, man, get with the program? I saw a few grins and smirks, heard a few things. Perhaps you did. I have a coach. I've had a teacher. I've had an employer. Uh, my parents. Uh, my wife. All right. <laughs> Are you with me? I mean, we've, we've had moments where someone has kind of said to us in maybe different words, but perhaps those words, can you get with the program? Like, get in sync with me. The one that stands out to my mind the most uh, happened when I was in high school. Uh, it didn't happen to me, but I was there when it occurred. Uh, I wrestled in high school, kind of a, uh, about 132 in my senior year. And so the guy that wrestled a couple weights above me, his name was Harry, Harry Piero. And he was uh, a triplet. And so uh, it was Harry, George, and Bill Piero. I don't know how they had an Italian name because they were Middle Eastern descent. So anyway, we were really good friends and practiced together for years. Uh, one day in the locker room, um, Harry weighed in. We all weighed in before practice. We had practice. We went home. The next day we come, we weigh in. And I hear the coach say, Harry, what have you done? So all of us kind of turned and we looked and like, oh, the coach is going to ring this dude out, right? He's going to have him and... He said, you're multiple pounds overweight. And just last night you left on weight. What did you do? Harry says, coach, I only ate a pound of food. He says, apparently not. He said, you're way overweight. We've got a tournament this weekend. And, and so we kind of watched this kind of thing play out. And then he said, Harry, tell me again what you ate. He says, coach, I just ate a pound cake. <laughs> so we just all kind of raised our eyebrows, leaned in. He said, that weighs a pound, right? He actually thought a pound cake was a pound. To which coach said, Harry, get with the program, bro. Like, you know, not just maybe wrestling-wise, but perhaps even food-wise, nutrition-wise, mathematics-wise, perhaps. I don't know. It was one of those moments where you're realizing, man, and he was actually really good, but he missed it that night, right? I want to bring that to your attention because I think sometimes that may be what God would say to us, perhaps. So let me ask you, do you know what God's program is? Do you know what God's up to currently? Do you know what God's up to eventually? Like, what is God doing now, and what does God intend to do later? Well, Ephesians 1, especially verse 10, answers the last of those questions and tells us what God is up to eventually. But I can't get there without at least describing briefly what God is up to currently. Because it's really kind of one thought between verse 7 and 10. So while I'm going to focus on verse 10 primarily, I do need to kind of back up to verse 7 and, and give someone of a review to answer this question. What is God up to currently and eventually? So your Bibles are open. Let's answer the first question just briefly by way of review. What is God up to currently? In a word, we'd say this. It's redemption. 
He's redeeming a people to himself from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. We sang about this in several of our songs already. This is what God is up to currently. Look at verse 7 with me. In him, speaking of Christ, and this really ties into our overall series. We're looking at all the times that, that being in Christ is this blessing, this afforded privilege that we have. It says that in Christ we have redemption through his blood. Here's a more specific way to say it. The forgiveness of our trespasses. So that's what we have in Christ. That's what Christ is doing currently. He's redeeming people. He's forgiving sinners. Paul goes on to explain more about this. He says this forgiveness, this redemption, it's on the basis of or in keeping with or according to the riches of his grace, meaning it's a gift which he lavished upon us. So he just bestowed this on us liberally. And he says next that, he did this in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So not only were we forgiven when we were redeemed, it says here that God in wisdom and insight then kind of brought us into the loop of what he's doing currently. And what is he doing? He's redeeming people into himself, not just from one nation any longer, but the mystery that's unfolded is that God is now inviting people from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue to be part of his family. Romans 1.16 says it came to the Jew first and then to the Greek. So the unfolding mystery is that God is forgiving sinners from, from everywhere. This is what God does. He forgives sinners. He redeems people. And he's making this known to us, what is known as the unfolding mystery of his will. Then it says in the last part of 9 that this was according to his purpose. So it's always been God's plan to do this, but he unfolded it in an incremental way. And of course, this was set forth in Christ. So again, Christ is the means, the avenue by which people are redeemed and forgiven. This has always been God's plan. So this is what God is up to. Church, listen, this is his mission to redeem people. And so it's because, because it's his mission, guess what? It is our mission as well. This is exactly why you heard the, the announcement about the disciples making disciples class. It's why this weekend, uh, four couples... We're spending some time with Mike and Leanne Hartwig in a, in a retreat about marriage, taking your marriage from good to great, not so they can just have a better marriage, but so that their marriage can point to the ultimate marriage, the woman in Christ and his church. It's why we're leaning uh, kind of into you with things like our men's studies, our women's studies, our men's conference, children's ministry, youth ministries. We make a pretty strong investment into these ministries. Why? Because everything we do needs to point to this fact. God redeems people. He forgives sinners. We should all be about that. And admittedly, we can do that in different ways, different formats, different methods, but that is the end result. And why is this such an important matter? It's because this is where the blessings are. Listen very carefully, my church. The blessings of life, the blessings of true life, true, joyful living is in Christ, not outside of Christ. In fact, don't you remember how this, this, this chapter, especially the first 14 verses, lays this out? I'll just show you the chart that we've used in the first few weeks to kind of highlight where our journey's taking us. All of the real blessings are in Christ. That's where we're chosen. That's where we're predestined. That's where we're adopted. That's where we're faithful. 
That's where we're blessed. That's all in these verses. And in fact, all the way through verses 1 through 14, you find that God is blessing those who are in Christ through Jesus by the Spirit. And the end result of all of that is that we'll be to the praise of His glorious grace. So in fact, in these first few verses, there is not a single imperative, not anything you should do. It's all about what God has done. We are blessed. And so an implication is this. If this is where all the blessings are, if it's in Christ, guess what? Let's tell folks about Christ. Let's share Christ. Let's proclaim Christ. He redeems people. He forgives the sinners. That should be so quick on our lips. That's making disciples who make disciples. So, so are you understanding? What is God currently doing? God is currently redeeming people. That's what 7 through 9 says. We talked about it in our previous message, so go back and hear that if you like some more explanation about those phrases. I just felt like that was important to understand what he's currently doing because what he's currently doing is kind of the, the runway for what he's going to eventually do. That's why it's one thought here in these verses. So let's answer the question next then. What is he eventually doing? We know currently he's redeeming people. What is he eventually doing? What's he up to ultimately? In a word, it's consummation. Will you say the word with me? Consummation. According to our text, it's the uniting of all things in and under Christ. But I think I can show you this better by going to our lab this morning and walking you through verse 10, which is really just the completion of a thought. But I want to show you how consummation is really what God is up to eventually. So have your Bibles out, right? You got your pen handy? Let me kind of show you a simple way to see this concept and this scripture, this concluding thought uh, to what God is doing eventually. <clears throat> Here's what the verse says. Notice it picks up from the phrase, which he set forth in Christ. Here's verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So you can see already this idea of being united in Christ. It seems to be this end goal, something God is aiming for, something he's working towards. Now there are three uh, key words in this singular verse, verse 10. It's the word plan. It's the word fullness of time. And it's the word unite. Let me walk you through those briefly, okay? Take some good notes here. I think you'll see how this progression will help you understand how this verse really wraps up and answers the question, what is God up to eventually? The word plan, and I'm just going to write the word administration in my beautiful handwriting, Sorry. The word plan there means administration. Um, it means God is orchestrating. He's dispensing, presiding over. And so God is, is working and ordaining something. It's his plan. Now, we're going to see in a few minutes that this plan, of course, is set forth in Christ. It's his purpose. But just notice in this, in this moment, he says that, that when Christ came, it was part of this plan that God is working, this ordination this, um, this economy, we'll call it, this, this way that of things playing out. God is orchestrating and directing this. So there is a plan. It is God's. And he says this plan is pointed towards something and, and will be most fully seen in what is called the fullness of time. Now, the, the word there, time, is actually a plural word in the original language. So we could literally say, and I think this is even a better way to say it, that he's working a plan that will culminate at the fullness of time times. So will you write this word culmination? You see, in Galatians, we have this same word used in a singular sense. 
in referencing the birth of Christ who was born under the law um, by a virgin. He talks about the fullness of time. In other words, when all these things intersected at this moment, then something that God had planned, predicted, and prophesied occurred. Here he's speaking of fullness of times, and I think what he's referencing here is when all of these moments like the coming of Christ at his birth, or like his death and resurrection or ascension. In other words, all of these uh, important intersecting moments in God's plan, when they all culminate at one point, something else will occur. And that's what he says in the word unite. That when all of these times, uh, can we use the word coagulate? I'm not sure that's a great word to use here. Congregate, when they come together, something happens. All things will be united in Christ. Notice the words there again. We're looking at this phrase throughout the book of Ephesians. In Christ. Now, the word unite here is, is probably best summed up with the word consummation. So jot that in. And what you have are three words. I'll just ask you to say them with me because I know you can read them really well, right? Administration, culmination, consummation. Or to use the words in the text, there's a plan. God is directing it. It will happen in the fullness of times. That's culmination. And then, of course, when that occurs, there will be a uniting of all things in Christ. That's consummation. Now, I need a little more about the word unite. Because you may read that and think, okay, I guess everything's going to be in him. Like the church is in him. Like it's his body. But that's not um, the best way to see the word unite here. The word unite comes from the word head. In fact, the root word for this word in the language is kephala. And so he's saying that everything at some point in the future, when all the fullness of times have kind of congregated and met and everything's been fulfilled, at that juncture, everything will come under and in the authority and lordship and headship of Jesus Christ. That does mean that believers are in Christ, yes. But I don't think he's saying here that, that plants or animals who are alive at that time or even unbelievers are in Christ. I think the point of this is that in Christ, all of this occurs. He's the means and avenue by which it happens. And yes, believers are in him, no doubt. But don't mistakenly read this and say, well, I guess at that point, uh, it, it'll almost be like the entire universe will be in Christ. No, the, the entire universe will be under Christ, under his headship. He will be universally in charge. Does that make sense? And, that, and part of that is that the church will be his body and in him, yes. So this word unite really is more of a, an overarching word that describes Christ's universal headship. And it's when it says in him, it's in Christ. It's through Christ. It's by means of Jesus that God will do all this. This is his ultimate aim, to bring everything under the lordship of Christ. Now, a few more things to show you here in our lab. Notice that what led into verse 10 were these two phrases that all of this is according to his purpose and his purpose is personified in Christ. You notice that? So God's purpose pinnacles in a person. It's Jesus. So watch this. You could then say this. So the administration of God's plan, well, let me just kind of connect these first of all. I think these two connect. God's purpose is Christ. That's how he works everything out. That's how he displays it. I think those are um, very synonymous. So what I'm saying is that then when you think about his plan, that's his purpose, and it's Christ. When you think about 
the fullness of times, that's his purpose. You think about consummating things, that's his purpose. In other words, verse 10 really is just kind of accentuated by the fact that this has always been God's purpose and it will happen in Christ. If you're tracking with me, kind of nod your head. This really, verse 10, it's not hard to understand. In fact, it's one of those moments where the simplicity of it just stares you in the face. You're like, oh, I get that now. This is what God has been up to. He's redeeming people. And there will be a day in which all of those who are redeemed will then be brought under his authority and his lordship as well as everything else in the universe. That's what God is doing eventually. So the text really answers these two questions for us. What is God up to currently? He's redeeming people. And what's he up to eventually? He's consummating everything under and in the headship and lordship of Christ. Now, this refers to one of two things. It either refers to the millennium, which is a 1,000-year visible reign of Christ on the earth after he returns. Now, how soon after he returns this begins depends upon your view of eschatology, and we can differ there and be great friends and have coffee. Amen? Right. But we would agree with this, that the millennium, if this is what it refers to, does occur after Christ comes again. Acts 111 assures us Christ is coming again. In fact, the Lord said, the angel said to the men who are watching, he will come just as you have seen him go. So I want to say to you, we don't believe a myth or a fable about the second coming of our Lord. It's an evidential, uh, observable fact in history that he will come again as he uh, went, which is uh, to the earth, in the air, in the visible manner. So we hold to truth that has evidential, fact-based, historical precedence. Christ is coming. And when he does, at some point after that, there will be a millennial period, a thousand years, in which Christ will reign. And at that point, if this refers to that, he will be ruling over everything perfectly. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, right? It may, however, refer to the eternal state. The eternal state is more of the theological name given to the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem, which is, um, can I use the word installed, after the millennium. Now, those who would believe this refers to that are those who probably would believe that the millennium is kind of a metaphorical word that refers to what's happening now. And there's some really good arguments for that, by the way. And even our leadership, we have different folks who believe differently on that issue. We don't think it's a closed-fisted thing. Uh, and so it's, it's one of these two things. It's either the eternal state or it's the millennium. And by the way, you can disagree on this and enjoy company. Travis and I do all the time, so don't worry about it, okay? You can have different opinions on them and get along great. My point is this. Regardless of what you think this refers to specifically, it will, it will be after the return of Christ. So what we're looking forward to and longing for is the return of Christ because that seems to be the, the um, catalytic event that begins this, this uh, rapid movement towards everything being consummated under Christ. Everything. Things in heaven. You see the text here? Things in heaven. Things on earth. And notice he didn't just say people. Things in heaven. Things on earth. Every single aspect of the universe will fall under the headship and lordship of Christ. Now, I want to bring one caveat to you as we think about what God is doing eventually. This does not mean universal salvation. This in no way teaches the doctrine of universalism. But I'll tell you what it does teach. It does teach universal submission. 
if you like a bolder, more blatant way to say it, it teaches universal subjection. That there is a time coming when everything and everyone will be under the authority and lordship and headship of Jesus. Some will be under that headship because in the current time, they're joyfully, humbly submitting to God in salvation. But then there will be those who resist the Lord and reject the gospel of grace, and they'll still be under him, though it'll be in defiant submission then. That's why I exhort you week in and week out to turn from sin, repent, and trust in Jesus. Because the point is this, in the end, God wins. And you will submit one way or the other. I call upon you pastorally, biblically, and logically. Submit to Christ now. Find yourself in Christ, redeemed, forgiven, and enjoy true life in Christ. Instead of finding yourself outside of Christ and still at the end, in your punishment and condemnation under his authority still. Now, there's an echo of this in Philippians. This idea that, that we will submit, either in joyful salvation now or in defiant submission later. Philippians 2 really points to this and echoes what Paul said in Ephesians. Look at these verses just briefly. In which Paul would write, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he would say this, that God has highly exalted Christ and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Notice the next phrase, church. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth. You know what that sounds like? It sounds like Ephesians 1, doesn't it? All things in heaven and all things in earth. So God here is saying, there's a day coming when Christ, who wears the name above every name, will be in charge, head, authoritatively over everything in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and what's this? Every tongue. How many tongues, church? Every. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And even this is done to the glory of God the Father. This is what God is up to eventually. Bringing everything to a, to a consummating submission to the Lordship of Christ, which is to the glory of God the Father. So do you see how Ephesians is pointing to the same thing? Philippians echoes that. And church, when you read this passage and you read Ephesians 1, I hope you will welcome this truth. Because understand this, the moment described in Philippians 2, the moment described in Ephesians 1, will be the most unifying, relationally perfect moment you will ever know or experience. I mean, think about the culture around you currently. We keep working harder for unity People say the word, they talk about it, and we're growing further and further apart. We're becoming more and more polarized. Even in the church, where there should be grace for different opinions, dissenting views on preference issues, I feel like if you watch different threads and social media posts and even conversations, you hear those, you just feel like there's so many things now we're fighting over. I'm not sure I can solve all that, and I don't think you can either. Some of that may just be our human nature, and we have to live through that and work hard against it till he comes. But when he comes and this consummation occurs, that will be done away with. Hallelujah, church. Amen. Don't you long for this perfect, unexplainable, 
unity in which everyone will recognize and see Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what God is doing eventually. So knowing what he's up to currently, which in one word is called what? Say it with me, church. Redemption. And knowing what he's up to eventually, in a word, is called what, church? Consummation. This is all, of course, done by God in Christ. That's the key phrase throughout these first 14 verses for sure. And knowing that Christ is the beginning and ending point of all of God's plan and work, it leaves us really with a, what I call this week a take-home summary. In fact, can I just reword that? Can I say it's a take-heart summary? Because I find great comfort. I find incredible assurance. I find wonderful delight in this truth. That first of all, God has a plan. That second of all, the point of the plan is Christ. And that third, you are part of the plan. So really it's a summary, but it can be one, and I can't use the word sentence because there's periods. But can I just say there's three distinct sentences that are so easy to remember. You could, you could nail this this morning. Walk out with this tucked in your pocket. That Watch this. God has a plan, or you can say there is a plan. It's God's. Christ is the point of the plan, and you are part of the plan. Let me land the plane, just kind of walk you through these phrases briefly. Aren't you glad that God has a plan? That, that, that verse 10 is on the heels of, of the fact that, that God has, has, uh, has purposes. He, he's got intentioned, deliberate, before the foundation of the world, plans. So this brings you freedom. So if you had to kind of log a word in your memory, would you just log the word freedom beside this first phrase that God has a plan? Here's what it frees you from, church. Just rejoice, man. Let your heart just smile with this. You know what? It frees you from worry. It frees you from fear. It frees you from condemnation. It frees you from doubt. It frees you from control issues. Like, like, guess who's got this? God. He's in full sovereign control. He's working, directing, uh, ordaining, administrating a plan based on his long time purpose. So God has a plan. And this should free you to live confidently, to live boldly, uh, to live intentionally, energetically. Now, now, let me just give a word of caution here. This does not mean that, that we throw to the wind any type of wisdom or planning. Did you know that only people pit those two against each other? Did you know that? The Bible never pits against each other wisdom, planning, and caution, and prudence, saving, whatever you want to call it, against God's control and plan. He never, the Bible never does that. In fact, Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He'll direct your path. And then he says also, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways. In other words, get to work, save, and plan, right? The Bible doesn't pit them. The Bible says they work in tandem. So I just want to encourage you with this. Just because you hear me say, don't worry, don't fear, I, I heartily Exhort that upon you. But that doesn't mean that you run out of here like a mad woman or a mad man and, and seek to be presumptuous. So, so just understand something here. That you can live confidently, boldly, energetically. Watch this. With your life, 
Leaning against the wall of God's purposes, which is what? Redemption. That's what God is up to. You can lean every ounce of your energy, every bit of your life into that purpose without fear that, well, something's going to happen to me outside of God's plan. No, it's not. God's got your life in the palm of his hand. His plan has never been thwarted. It's not thwarted now. So live with energy and confidence and assurance that God's plan is being worked and will come to a consummation. Second phrase, Christ is the point of the plan. Just, just kind of log this word, focus. In other words, who gets your attention when you think about the plan God has? Well, guess who it's not? It's not you and it's not me. It's Christ. You see, Christ is the point of the plan. Verse 9 lays this out, that God's purposes. Man, he put him forth in Christ, and this is the plan that he's working to consummate everything in and under his headship and lordship. And this is where I think some churches kind of, um, you know, detour to get off track. Maybe I should say this is where some church members get off track. I think, as odd as this may sound, some folks actually come to Christ, and they subsequently get involved in his body, the church, with this idea that, okay, I'll get the attention I need. And when they don't, because the attention is not aimed at them, but at Christ, they get frustrated. And it's poisonous to be involved in a church and thinking that they should direct their attention to you. When the whole point of God's plan isn't you, it's Christ. Now, that doesn't mean God isn't for you. But let me just tell you and break the news to you, it's not about you. It's about Christ. The entire Old Testament has been pointing to Christ. The entire New Testament looks back to Christ. Here's the, here's the deal, church. Christ is the point of God's plan. Paul would say he preaches Christ crucified. He said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Christ. We are simply servants. So we're not looking for attention. And anyone that comes to Christ hoping to get attention and not take action will be disappointed. This doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. This doesn't mean the church can't care for you. But the center of the church's focus isn't you and it's not me. It's Christ. It's when he's lifted up that all men are drawn to, to God. Does that make sense? So that's what we're after. And my fear sometimes in this thinking about focus and that, that God's point in the plan is Christ is that sometimes we act like those who lived in the early 1500s and before who they were sure that the solar system in the universe revolved around the earth. And then Copernicus enlightened them. And finally we realized we're just one of the planets revolving around the sun. And sometimes I think church members have a 16th century perspective on themselves. The church revolves around me. No, you're just another member and we are revolving around Christ and God the spirit and everything that he has said and done. Does that make sense? So when you realize that there's a plan, understand next that the point of the plan is Christ. But here's the good news. You are part of the plan. Now notice how I said that. You're part of the plan. It's not an optional statement. It's a definitive declaration. Whether you want to be or not, whether you like it or not, there is extremely strong scriptural support that says you are part of the plan. 
I would just remind you of Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh was part of God's plan. Those are difficult verses to understand and to extrapolate into how they play out today. But if you read the book of Exodus and you read Romans, you find that it was for God's glory that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He was part of the plan. So, so don't think, oh, part of the plan if I choose to be. I, I just want to let you know, theologically uh, sound and biblically accurate, you are. You're part of the plan. And my exhortation is, man, get on board God's team. Let's say it like this. Get with the program. Because you are part of the plan. And man, my prayer is that no one in the sound of my voice or our small groups or our ministries or any one of our members would go to hell without knowing Christ redeems from that. Christ saves from that. You see, log this word on this side here. Just log the word fit. In other words, in your own way, your, your, your spiritual gifts, your abilities, your, your uniqueness, your personality, the way you're wired, it fits exactly what God needs in his plan. He's made you on purpose, by design. We saw this last week. And the way he's made you, the way he's gifted you through his spirit, all those things combine to help you play a specific role in his plan, which is to point people to Christ from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. And so when you look at how you're made, your talents and abilities and gifts, ask yourself this question. How can I use that in God's overarching purpose to redeem people and forgive sinners? That's what every person should be asking. For some, they will go across the ocean. For others, they'll work right there in their employment. There's all kinds of ways. There's all different kinds of, can we use the word fits here, right? But none of us have the, the privilege or even the, the option to say, well, I don't think I'll be part of the plan. You are. And I encourage you, I call you to be part of the plan in joyful, humble, salvific submission and serve the Lord's purposes. Do not resist and reject and then find yourself part of his plan in a different way, glorifying him through your own condemnation. So three distinct phrases. They're simple to remember. Will you say them with me? There is a plan. The point of the plan is Christ, and you are part of the plan. You know what we just, we just said to ourselves right there? You have essentially just said the whole entire meta-narrative of Scripture. This is what the Bible does. It lays out God's plan, which is Christ, and at some point in the future, God will consummate everything under Christ. You're part of that. See, this is the kind of simplicity and mentality needed to live your life in this culture. And I call upon you today. I plead with you pastorally and exhort you strongly. Let the simplicity of this moment stare you squarely in the face and ask, you, ask yourself this question. Am I with the program? Or is your life about everything else but God's plan? Are your interests and finances and resources and energies about everything but God's plan? Do you know your neighbors, your co-workers? Do you know who our partners are to pray for them? Have you asked God, Lord, what's my next step? What's my next assignment in, in sharing the news about you? 
You see, all of us are really at a crossroads. Either you will agree to know Christ now and accept his gift of forgiveness, or you'll agree to can you live to share Christ now. And again, sharing Christ can be in multiple ways and different uh, kind of fits, you know, how we're shaped, yes. But all of us, we either, have to, we either know, know Christ or share Christ. This is the decision all of us are, are brought to, to, to look at today because this is the program God is doing. He's redeeming people. And he's going to consummate all that one day under Christ. And so, man, can we just as a church and individually say this? I want to get with the program. And let the simplicity of this singular verse in Ephesians 1, that all things will be united in him, just kind of grab us and move us to action, to lean the ladder of our life against the wall of God's purposes. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.